You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today is July 25th. I'm going to start off today's podcast. This is Greg here with an article from the Wall Street Journal. Shoppers are trading down to cheap beer brands and discount cigarettes as they feel more pressure on their pocketbooks. Consumer prices in the United States rose at a 9.1% annual rate in June, the fastest pace in nearly 41 years, as strong consumer demand has collided with persistent supply shortages. In a survey released this month by the National Retail Federation, only half of consumers said that because of rising prices on everyday necessities, they're switching to cheaper alternatives. Vincent Jarbu, co-owner of Washington All Liquor in Esplanade, Michigan, said he noticed consumers buying single cans of beer instead of six-packs to save money. Demand has also increased in recent months for cheaper cigarette brands like Pall Mall and Maverick, Jarbu said. I find this really interesting, Doug. I think that, and the Wall Street Journal also had an article about consumer debt, and, and that specifically was hitting people in the lowest income brackets and the middle and upper middle income brackets as defined by the Fed. I think it's fascinating that these particular segments of the population are really being hit by higher prices. And in particular, the lower income cohort, they're switching to cheaper versions of their staples like a beer and cigarettes. And then the article goes on to say that Bush Light, which is the one of the, the most popular brands in the economy segment of beer, their specific performance on a year-over-year basis is at really high levels. I find that really interesting. Number one, I'm not a Bush Light fan myself. I thought it would be a Keystone Light, which that was my go-to cheap beer back in the day. But also, it's no surprise from the standpoint of, of people that have lower incomes that gas prices and the such are really starting to affect their pocketbooks. Yeah, this is Monday, the 25th of July. Walmart just released their earnings and it was a a big whiff. They're down about 10% after hours. This is what the Doug McMillan CEO of Walmart said. The increasing levels of food and fuel inflation are affecting how consumers spend. And while we've made good progress clearing hardline categories, apparel in Walmart US is requiring more markdown dollars. We are now anticipating more pressure on general merchandise in the back half of 2022. So consumers are feeling it. And, you know, when you have 9% inflation numbers, you're going to look for substitutes or you're going to spend less and not do the discretionary things that maybe you had had done during 2021. I do want to say, maybe on a positive note, I guess two things. Number one, it does appear just from my vantage point that inflation, at least in the next couple of prints, will be lower than 9.1%. The biggest piece is... BlackRock released a study on just breaking down the components of inflation and energy expense made up of the 9.1% CPI print from June. Energy was about 2.9% of that. And I have a, a stat here from Sean Emery, who states that gas prices are down for 40 consecutive days, approaching March levels. The gasoline prices are where they were at the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So we've come full circle from you know the February 24th, I think it was February 24th invasion to today, 
gasoline prices are back to where they were before, despite all the craziness in Russia. And wheat prices are below where they were, knowing Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. Wheat prices are below where they were before the invasion. That's crazy. I think this is indicative of the market telling a couple of things that there's going to be an economic slowdown and potentially recession. And that's what my two cents is that that's what's being priced in. Another headline, the WCI Shanghai to Los Angeles shipping index per container in 2021 at the end of the year peaked at about 12,500 per container. It's now 7,200 down almost 50% from the end of the year. So supply chain shortages are sort of working themselves out and then uh, economic slowdown, Walmart with a big swing and a miss on earnings. And then you know the article that you referenced related to substitutes or spending less. You know, we talked about this on our 4th of July podcast. My stance is that there's really two directions this can go. One is the Fed pulls a rabbit out of its hat and has a soft landing that they slow down on interest rate increases because of economic slowdown and actually make this thing work itself out. The other the other component to this is they go too far on raising rates and push the economy into a recession. There was a similar statistic or like another reference point that AT&T had in their latest earnings report from last week that consumers are two days slower on average paying their bills than they were a year ago, which impacted AT&T's cash flow. And we've talked about this at length in other podcasts that in our day-to-day life, I personally have cut back spending on certain things that I deem to be ridiculous. Like I really have cut back on any sort of like food delivery to my house because that has just gone astronomical in terms of how much that costs to get like one or two meals sent to your house. But also for the individuals that are living paycheck to paycheck, the cost of gasoline and utilities, et cetera, certainly starting to have an impact. And you can see that just like I mentioned in the the standpoint of cheaper alternatives with beer, but also and cigarettes, but also from the standpoint of the ability for people to pay their telephone bills, which are like, you know, the first bill basically that people pay or one of the first bills that people pay. So the interesting thing is, despite all of this, the market is probably about 5% or 10% from its lows. So the low for the S&P 500 was 36.66, which was on June 16th. And right now, the S&P 500 since then is close to 4,000. So the S&P 500 is up about 10% from its lows. And so all this bad news is coming out in real time, but the market seems to have turned around. And uh, Doug, I'm sure you have an opinion on this as to why in general, and also just in terms of what, you know, what event is coming up this week in terms of the Fed. But if you want to kind of extrapolate on the sort of the conflict that exists in terms of this bad news that's sort of vindicating what everybody's concerns were that there's, you know, potential recession coming up, but then what would the market have rebounded in spite of this sort of news? I think two things come to mind. We were having conversations a couple of weeks ago where, you know, basically with clients who were worried about, you know, this thing or, or the other, and Dave Stokes had this great response to somebody that says, what good news do you have? And basically what he was getting at is, Everyone is a market participant. The market is a combination of all buyers and sellers on a daily basis. And obviously, there's been a lot more sellers than buyers recently, and prices have gone down. 
But what he was saying is news can't really get much worse than it is today. The sentiment is horrible. Market prices reflect that. So any just positive change in sentiment have a dramatically positive impact on prices. And we've seen that. I mean, I think the sentiment change over the last couple of weeks has been that inflation may be coming down or maybe have been peaking. And I think we're seeing that start to show up in the numbers and we're seeing that to show up in stock prices. And I think if you look at, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the leader of the last month plus has been the most interest rate and inflation sensitive stocks. You've seen energy stocks really fall out of bed. Those are the ones that are positively correlated to inflation interest rates. And you've seen sort of the NASDAQ techie stocks have somewhat of a rebound over the last 45 days. So I think that's just the negative sentiment in the market that things are horrible, but maybe they weren't as bad as as predicted. I do want to say this uh, in terms of first six months of the year, this has been a historic first six months in terms of the 60-40 portfolio. It's the third worst start on record of a 60-40 stock to bond portfolio for the first six months of the year. BlackRock put this out that they went through all other periods in which the 60-40 portfolio was down as bad as it is this year. 1932 and 1940 were the only two worse years than this year. 1932, the first... God. This is in actually in June. So, it was the first five months. 1932, a 60-40 portfolio was down 24.8%. 1940, down 14.7%. 2022, down 11.2%. And then it goes through the next seven months, the next 12 months. On average, seven months later, 60-40 is up 9.6%. And 12 months later, up 12.6%. 1932, it was up almost 70% after the next 12 months. You kind of throw that out. Things are bad, but the market ebbs and flows and generally overcorrects on the downside and overcorrects on the upside. And people that stick with a game plan end up end up working out. And so I think, you know, history will repeat itself in that particular aspect. One of our clients told me one time that things are never as good or as bad as they seem. And you're right. Things have seemed very bad lately. We talked about this the last podcast or a couple of podcasts ago about the recession and vibes, meaning that if we don't actually have a recession, the general sentiment is that people are just so negative right now that the general collective attitude that everybody has is receding. Everybody's in such a bad mood. Actually, there's a data point that came out about this lately, and it's also similar to what you would see in your day-to-day life. But the Consumer Confidence Index, the University of Michigan pulls people and calls them at their house and asks them how they feel about the economy. And according to their latest survey, which that was done in June, the consumer confidence level is at the lowest level than it has been going back to 1952. So the overall market sentiment of consumers in the economy is so low right now. All the data is finally starting to come out. From a short-term expectation standpoint, the Fed is meeting this week. By the time this podcast is released, we'll know ultimately what the Fed is going to do from a, a rate standpoint. The market is pricing in that the Fed is going to raise rates to 75 basis points. But hopefully, the market has kind of turned a corner. That obviously remains to be seen. It is not a prediction or anything like that. But usually, the market is a leading indicator and looks forward. And that's what everybody says, that the market looks three months to 30 months forward. So one would expect news to continue to be bad, even though the market is recovering because the market is looking past all of that and has already priced all that in. 
I mean, look at COVID for that. I mean, that was a classic example that the market bottoms before the economy. Market started recovering on March 23rd, 2020, and COVID was just ramping up. I remember in late March of 2020, I was talking to my wife. We were stuck at home with kids, talking about in August when all this blows over, we're going to go on a big trip. August of 2020, you know, obviously COVID lasted another 24 months beyond that. So I completely agree. I think the you know, market bottoms before the economy. Now, I think it remains to be seen whether the economy has bottomed or whether the market has bottomed. I think we've had one negative GDP quarter. The Atlanta Fed GDP now forecast has the second quarter being a negative GDP print. So we could already be in a technical recession based upon the classic definition of two consecutive negative GDP prints. You know, it doesn't mean there can't be another one beyond that, another negative GDP quarter. But I wouldn't be surprised that you know we have a recession in vibes. Consumer spending comes down as a result of headline numbers that are scary, whether it's 9.1% GDP, I mean, 9.1% CPI growth or negative GDP or just general supply chain issues, et cetera. But you know, obviously things can get worse from here and nobody knows the future. But, you know, we had stocks that topped, bonds that topped, commodities that topped, and we're seeing a rebound now in stocks, a rebound in bonds, and commodities are still, you know, at their lower levels than they were before. So I'm an optimistic person just by nature, but I'm optimistic on the future. And I think that, you know, if you extend your time horizon long enough and if you look at prior data, after the declines that we've seen recently, usually is a setup for you know, positive outlook going forward. Not only that, if you look at those two worst periods that you just referenced, 1932 and 1940, they were in the midst of major calamitous events. Obviously, 1932 was after the Dow Jones had the Black Tuesday or Black Monday. I don't know. There was a Black Tuesday and a Black Monday. I don't know which one was which. Right, exactly. I think it was Black Monday. It was Black Tuesday. It was in 87. But at Black Monday in 1929, the markets were off, I don't know, 30 or 40%. And then it ended up during the Great Depression, they bottomed, I think, at 90% or something like that. And so one would expect those sorts of really bad environments surrounding that period of time. Like the 60-40 portfolio had its worst period in time in 1932 around that period of time. Black Monday was 1987. Okay, so it was Black Tuesday or go. Black Friday. One of these bad days of the week <laughs> right. in 1929. Black Tuesday was uh, October 29th, 1929. Okay, yeah. So yeah. hopefully we have another one of these. There, right? Hopefully the other days stay like neutral or whatever. Right, we can only have seven of these and then we don't have any more. Uh, yeah, what color do they revert to? After that? I guess Saturday and Sunday can be reserved for Bitcoin because it's open on the weekend. Right. So you can have a crash over the weekend and we can use that for crypto. <laughs> So I have another stat for you, which I think is really interesting. And BlackRock's put out some pretty good stuff recently. This is the worst three-year period for bonds ever. Can you name which one it is? Which three-year period? Okay. So this is all me going off of memory. So, or not memory, but just experience and knowledge. One of them has to be in the 70s. So around the inflationary cycle in the 70s. One of them has to be in the early 90s as well, too. And then I would say the other one would be today. Or how do I stand in that quote? The worst three-year period is year ending June 30th, 2022. Yeah. Negative three-year compound return of negative 
The two other worst ones were March and February of 1980, mm-hmm. so late 70s yeah. to 1980, negative 7% per year, or negative 0.7% per year, negative 0.5% per year. The one in the 70s was the the Volcker, like Fed raise when he tried to- Volcker put. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What was the return following three-year return, average annual for those two periods? I'll just tell you because this is impossible to guess. 17.9% March 1980 to March 1983, 17.8% February 1980, February 1983. The other periods were in 57, 81. It was all the 50s and the 80s. It was anywhere from the worst three-year return after that period was 4.3%. The best was 19.3. So we just finished the worst of the worst going back to 1926. And so you got to feel pretty good about bonds right now. You got to feel pretty good about getting a mortgage anytime in the last five years, basically. I mean, if you think about it, it's just absolutely crazy to me that the 10-year treasury, well, the 10-year treasury during COVID, I think, got to like, I don't know what the low was, like 0.3% or something like that. Yeah, it was bad. Right. It was bad. And then that, I mean, it got up to 3.2% just, you know, about a month ago. So that bottoming effect, moving rates since then has just been astronomical. And the thing about the treasury market is that it's like the most liquid market that exists out there. And for such a dramatic move in that type of market is really astounding. We talked about this at the beginning of the year that when we were looking at like a 60-40 portfolio, the scariest part about that was the bond portion that was earning zero to one percent. Now in a 60-40 portfolio, you feel pretty good about your 40% allocation earning. I mean, on like investment grade corporate bonds, you can get four plus percent yields now. Right. If inflation's coming down, which I fully expect it to do, if you're looking at all of at least the commodity numbers and consumer spending, then you would expect you're locking in 4% plus with inflation coming down with the yield curves currently inverted. But the expectation of the Federal Reserve is that they're going to be cutting rates in the next couple of years. I feel really good about corporate bonds, you know, investment grade or slightly below investment grade credit with four plus up to, you know, 6% yield. That's a good place to be for not a crazy duration either. I think the same thing goes for munis too. Yeah. For a similar duration type of muni, you're getting paid three or 4% and you're getting the tax free benefit of it. So there's never been a better time to be buying fixed income. If you think that inflation is going to normalize, which I agree with you. There hasn't been a better time to be buying bonds because, I mean, for the longest time, we were managing money based upon what was available to us from a fixed income standpoint. And we had to buy in that environment of 1% to 2% for high quality, and now you're getting 4%. And if things normalize, you're going to be definitely thanking yourself for owning that debt for that period of time. The prospective return expectations on equities have got to be higher as well, too, because you're starting from a much lower point. And eventually, earnings are going to normalize, et cetera. So you would conceivably um, return more for your dollars invested in equities as well, too. So there's a lot of different ways to look at this from a glass half full standpoint. I mean, if you look at the data from what we what you referred to astutely, that it has been a brutal period. And it's sometimes in the collective humanity has never been more negative from a consumer standpoint than it is now. But there are some definitely some ways to look at this from the perspective of the glass being half full. And that is that the world doesn't come to an end, which I'm not betting on. But if you look at what history has shown from a prospective return standpoint, 
things hopefully will look a lot different in 18 or 24 months. You ready for another stat? Yes. We're in election year, midterm year, uh, elections in November of this year. There's a lot of attention paid to stock performance during election cycles. I don't know how much correlation there is there just because, you know, politics versus, you know, stock prices, there's not, I can't logically draw a correlation there, but it's interesting to think about at least other than, you know, what's going to happen in the political landscape one or two years after that, that election. But here we go. Midterm election years. This is from BlackRock as well. The first six months of all midterm elections since 1926. So basically 100 years of data, lots of midterm years that they've gone through. First six months, average annualized return of 0.3%. The worst period for stocks is the first six months of a midterm year, historically. The back half of that year, so July to December during midterm years, average annual return 7.1%. So it's a huge gap. So basically flat for six months and plus 7.1% for the last six months during a midterm year. But this is maybe the more interesting piece. Midterm election years have the historically the worst average annualized return, and it's not even close. All years, U.S. stock performance, uh, and this is the S&P 500 for the last 50 years or 70 years, and then the SBBI, U.S. large cap index for 26 to 57. All years, 12.3% annualized return during all election years. During presidential election years, 11.6% annualized return. During non-election years, 14.6%. And then during midterms, an 8.6% return. So you get double-digit returns historically during everything but a midterm year. So this is a bad year historically for stocks, and this is historically bad for historically bad years. Yeah, it's fascinating. I looked at the, while you were talking, I looked at the 538 projections right now. This 538 is a website if you guys want to check it out. It's it's an awesome resource for people that like statistics like myself, like what I'd like to do, and, and I Doug likes it as well too. There are a variety of other like election and uh, sports statistical resources that exist. 538 is awesome. That's probably my favorite of them all. The, the New York Times also provides one as elections get closer. But for 538, they provide like NFL game by game statistical probabilities of who's going to win the game or which team's going to win the game. And then likewise, playoff chances, et cetera. I'm a huge Saints fan. Doug's a huge Saints fan. So we like to follow along with 538. Also with the Pelicans, they provide NBA statistical analyses. They do it for election cycles as well, too, and that's their primary breadwinner, if I had to guess. But what they do is they look at all the districts that are available for each election cycle and then for presidential election cycles, et cetera, and they come up with a statistical model from the likelihood of success. Right now, they basically think there's an 85% chance. The, the Senate is a toss-up from the standpoint of right now that it's a 50-50 split, so effectively the Democrats control the two legislative branches and the executive branch. Right now, they think that the Senate is a toss-up. Its most likely outcome is for it to remain 50-50. But the House, they estimate that the Republicans have an 85% chance of gaining control of the House. That's two and a half, three months out. And there's going to be a lot of news about that, I'm sure, as time goes on. But that's what they provide as far as their estimates are concerned. And, and anybody that wants to follow that more closely as time goes on can check out that. It's 538.com. And it's a great resource. 
Yeah. I think from a stock perspective, we've talked about this in the past, but I think stocks like falling uncertainty. And so the best performing years for the stock market has been when there's non-election years. And the worst performing year for the stock market is when there's midterm years where there's tons of elections going on. So I would say the only correlation there is just the level of uncertainty compared to you know less uncertainty in, in non-election years. But I do find it interesting that, um, that the first six months of all midterm years, the market has basically done nothing. Right. That's a great observation about the uncertainty aspect. And typically after midterm elections, that's usually when if there's been unilateral control by one party, then typically they lose that control, which then begets gridlock, which markets do love. And there's more certainty because there's like less likelihood for policy changes, which markets like. So it'll be interesting to see how things pan out. But yeah, this has definitely been a grind and we'll see you know where we go from here. But uh, hopefully the worst of this is behind us. Yep. And uh, I think we're at 30 minutes now. So I think that's it for today. And, and we'll be back next week. And Greg will be traveling, but we'll get him on the line from uh, Portugal. Yes, sir. So I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast today. This is Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap. Please rate us five stars and give us a comment and share with your friends, family, if you think they might enjoy. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.